This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Can anyone break into high society? From Cinderella, Eliza Doolittle, and Jay Gatsby, to Don Draper and Anna Sorokin, characters that can fool their way into the elite through their smarts, willpower, and chutzpah, help us pierce the pretensions of the rich. Kyla Zhao, in her debut novel, The Fraud Squad, creates her own version of the character in Samantha Song, a harried writer at a Singaporean public relations firm who embarks on a scheme with a close friend and a very handsome and wealthy acquaintance to break onto the city's social scene in just three months. The Fraud Squad is Singaporean through and through. Samantha drinks kopi, swelters under the summer heat, lives in an HDB flat, and deals with overbearing Asian parents, a different setting than what readers of these kinds of books might normally experience. Born and raised in Singapore, Kyla Zhao graduated in 2021 from Stanford University. Right now, she works in marketing at a tech company in Silicon Valley. Besides novel writing, Kyla has an extensive magazine writing magazine editorial portfolio. Previously, she was a fashion and lifestyle writer at Vogue Singapore. She has also written for the Singapore editions of Harper's Bazaar and Tatler and covered the Asian Television Awards. Today, Kyla and I talk about Singapore, its elite society, the glamour or lack thereof in the publishing industry, and why audiences may finally be ready for works by Asian and Asian American authors. So, Kyla, thank you for coming on the show today. You know, I, I want to start by talking about your protagonist, Samantha Song. You know, what made you want to write about this kind of character, about someone trying to break into elite society? Yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast. And that's a really good question. So I think I was inspired by my own sense of imposter syndrome. And I mean, I've never thought about becoming a fraud, but there were many times in my life when I felt like an outsider, when I felt like I didn't belong. For instance, when I moved from Singapore, which is a predominantly Chinese country, to come to California to attend Stanford University, which is a predominantly white elite institution. And I was living with people who are from some of the wealthiest families in the world. Their last names were on the buildings on campus. 
And I just felt so different from the world that I came from. And I've definitely, you know, just laid awake at night wondering if I really belonged and feeling like the responsibility was on me to try to assimilate and to fit in. And so in my protagonist, Samantha Song, even though she ultimately wears the right clothes, she knows how to walk the walk and talk the talk. But deep down, she knows that this is not a world that she truly belongs in, no matter how much she might appear to on the surface. So yeah, just trying to explore these feelings of being an outsider and trying to fit in. So how did you kind of take those feelings of... um feel like you had to assimilate, feeling like you're in a kind of a, a new a new environment. And and how did you kind of transplant those feelings to this different environment of Singapore with all of its um with all of its you know different social structures and its own um feelings of assimilation and and so on? Yeah, I think um I started writing this book during the pandemic in 2020. Um, and the pandemic got me thinking a lot about the concept of home and what it means to belong to a place, because this was the time when every country around the world was shutting down its borders and no one was letting anyone else into their countries. So, I mean, how do I put it? I think it just came from this subconscious desire of wanting to connect to my hometown I got very homesick during the pandemic. I was living alone in California for much of 2020 while my family was back in Singapore and I didn't know when I would get to see them again. And so I consciously or subconsciously chose to set my book in Singapore and to write about the place that I've grown up in for the first 18 years of my life. It was my way of staying connected with my country and my loved ones back home. So... I want to talk more about kind of the characters of your book. Um, and I was thinking about uh, Samantha's two friends. There's the there's the socialite Anya, and then there's the the lawyer Raina. And it seems like they're kind of reflecting different parts of Sam's character. You know, Anya is obviously the the socialite that that Sam wants to be. Raina is the person from her past that kind of helps keep things real. Um, yeah. I wonder if you might talk a bit more about kind of how you developed. Um, this supporting cast around your protagonist? Yeah, um, well, first of all, I think I was inspired partly by socialites I've known and met in real life during my work experiences at luxury magazines like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Tatler. So that helped me craft a very authentic high society setting and characters. But like what he said, um, you know, for instance, Samantha's two best friends, Raina and Anya, they represent very different parts of herself. They represent, one represents where she comes from um, and the other represents this new environment that she wants so desperately to be a part of. And I think that is so common for a lot of people. There will always be some point in our life and we feel caught between two different worlds and we have one foot in one door and we feel like we don't fully belong to either place. Um, I felt like that, you know, like I said, when I started studying at Stanford or even when I became a full-time working adult and now I live in California and every time I go back home to Singapore, there's always that that sense of dissonance. Like, I know I'm like a Singaporean at heart, but I've also been away from this place for many months. So what does it mean to truly belong to a place and to truly belong to a group of people, to a community? So... Obviously, there is a um, there is a romantic element to this story, uh, to your book, and um, and but it, but with without kind of giving away too many too many too many spoilers, um, 
it doesn't that part of the story doesn't quite end i think the way that uh people might expect a book like this to to end um so i wonder if you might talk about the character of timothy kingston and how uh and how you built the relationship between between tim and uh, your protagonist sam yeah i think the one thing i always tell people is that even though there is a romantic plot line this book is ultimately not a romance like it was never the focal point the focus of my story was always going to be on Samantha, like this woman and her story of how she's trying to find her identity and her career as a young working adult. I think Timothy is, Timothy was an interesting character to explore because even though, you know, Samantha is the most obvious example of a fraud, I do believe that almost every character in this book is a fraud in their own ways. They are all trying to pretend or aspiring to be someone they are not. And that is the case for Timothy as well, even though he approaches it from the completely opposite perspective and background from Samantha. And I think just their very different backgrounds, like Timothy was born to a billionaire family that sets up certain conflicts in the way they approach things. Um, Timothy, even though he tries to break out of high society, even though he really wants to establish his own identity outside of his family, ultimately he has always known a life of luxury. He has always had a safety net in the form of his family's wealth. And so he has never had to be afraid of failing at anything. Whereas for Samantha, she, she has grown up in a time when her family was living paycheck to paycheck. And so there's always this fear within her and she feels like she has to take bigger risks, but at the same time, she's also very cautious because if she fails, there'll be nothing, you know, saving her. So I think they are very different characters. They're very different backgrounds. They're very different histories. It kind of collides when the two of them meet each other. So I, I now want to talk about kind of one of the um, unique factors of your book, at least in the kind of the causes of all the other stories in that it's set in Singapore, um, you know, what is it about uh, about Singapore, um, it being such a big, vibrant, and, and bustling city and multicultural city that makes it such a good setting for a story about uh, high society, for, for the story you're trying to tell in The Fraud Squad? The thing about Singapore is that, firstly, it's a very small country, and high society is a very small circle. So if you put high society in Singapore, you basically end up with like this very, very tiny circle where everyone knows everyone else. And, um, you know, gossip and news makes its way through the grapevine so quickly. And you really cannot afford to burn any bridges just because you're probably going to end up running into that person like at some event. So that's a very interesting environment to be in where there are definitely, um, you know, envy and jealousy and resentment brewing beneath the surface, but everyone knows not to show it too publicly. But at the same time, everyone's also aware of these this spider web of relationships just like lurking beneath the very glamorous surface. And Singapore, like you said, it's a multicultural country. I think that adds a lot of vibrance to the story. And it's just one thing I always say is that, you know, like the Asian diaspora isn't a monolith and every Asian person can have such different life experiences. And my book tries to showcase one facet of what it means to 
um, be in the Asian diaspora, but it's definitely not going to cover all of it, not even close to that. And ideally, there will be other books in the future that would explore other facets of what it means to be living in multicultural Singapore. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned the fact that Singapore seems so small. I mean, I'm I'm based in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is exactly the same. Um, you'd think for a city with so many people, uh, you, this wouldn't happen, but um, it can be surprising how, I'm going to use the word small the city feels at times, the feeling that everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows yeah. what everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it can be very claustrophobic. Um, but to kind of keep on the Singapore topic, you know, what are some of the specifically Singaporean elements you want to weave into your story? I mean, I mentioned a few in my intro, things like <laughs> drinking kopi and living in an, in an HTV flat, but but how did you try to really kind of bring out some of the uniquely Singaporean elements um, in the Frost Squad? That wasn't something I was ever consciously trying to do. I just wanted to write about the Singapore that I know, the Singapore that I was familiar with. So for instance, like HTV Void Decks, I have many happy childhood memories there. There are Singapore places that I mentioned in my book. These are all places I've been before um, that were important places to me while growing up. And the Singaporean food, like that is the one big thing I miss so much, you know, in California. It's really hard to find affordable, authentic Singaporean food here. Um, this entire book is very much my perspective of Singapore, and it was inspired and based on my personal experiences with my hometown. You know, I mean, obviously this, you can't talk about, um, you can't talk about high society, elite society without talking about class, you know. Um, you know, how how do you think that phenomenon is understood in Singapore? Or maybe how did you experience that phenomenon in Singapore? Which, you know, I think often prides itself on being a meritocracy. You know, it's very much like, oh, you know, you work hard, you too can succeed. Um, and how do you want to kind of convey those those feelings about about class through through your book? Yeah, I think, I mean, the socioeconomic differences in the book is something that it's, I try to explore that by having characters come from different points of the socioeconomic spectrum. You have someone like Timothy, who is born with wealth and with prestige, which are two um, related, but not entirely similar things. And then you have someone like Anya who is born into wealth, but who did not enjoy the same kind of prestige. And that's why she has a chip on her shoulder. And then you have someone like Samantha who was born with Nida. And so the three characters of the Fraud Squad capture three different stages of the socioeconomic ladder. And I think, you know, between them, there are obvious differences. Like if you're wealthy, you have access to more resources, you have access to designer products, you can get into expensive places more easily. But I think the difference in class also comes through in the way they view the world and in how they move through the world. And that was something I also observed at Stanford, where there were people from, similar to my book, like across the socioeconomic spectrum, there were kids who had parents who were billionaires, and then there were kids on financial aid. So there was a pretty drastic difference. But, you know, we were all in college. Um, we weren't like flaunting the designer brands. So it isn't immediately obvious who is wealthy. But after a while, you kind of get a sense of it. Because um, people from a working class background, like, they're always kind of planning ahead. They're like, okay, I need to get an A so that I can get an internship, so that I can get a good job. Whereas those from a wealthier background, like Timothy in my book, 
he doesn't really have the same kind of concern because he just doesn't have the same worries. He knows that no matter what, he will have a safety net. And that comes true in how he perceives himself and his place in the world. And then how does how does kind of age fit into this too? Um, you know, there are a couple, I think one of the one of the things that's mentioned in in your novels that you know sam's always saying you know tastes are changing um you like you can't like when, when she's advising like other editors and stuff she's saying you know like oh tastes are changing you can't keep on doing the same luxury content um I, i'm reminded of of this debate that recently happened in singapore about about this young singaporean you tried to buy who, who was who was advertising your first luxury tote bag there was a backlash because it wasn't very expensive. And then there was a backlash to the backlash saying, why are you judging this poor, this, this poor young Singaporean for, for being very proud of her first luxury purchase. Um, and then it all became a big thing. The brand got involved in everything. Um, but in your view, I mean, I mean, how are, is there a difference between kind of older Singaporeans and younger Singaporeans about how they think about luxury, how they think about um, elite society? That I'm not entirely sure about. Mm. I think I have a better sense of what my generation thinks, but not necessarily what the older generation thinks. And, you know, it might not necessarily be a generational thing, perhaps. It could just be a, like, that's the time in society. Like, for instance, when I wrote this book, it was during the pandemic. Um, People were getting laid off. Job offers were getting taken back. Everyone was talking about recession. No one was spending any money. And that was kind of the atmosphere in which I wrote this book. And that's why in the book, for instance, I wrote that, that there were mentions of how, you know, they're living through a recession. And that's why people don't want to be digesting a lot of luxurious content. And that's why we were seeing the real world as well. We were seeing celebrities get a lot of backlash because they were flaunting their vacations on private islands while the rest of us were at home in lockdown. And people were just getting frustrated when they saw how tone deaf some of the wealthy people could be. But then again, I think afterwards, people started developing more of an appetite for these kinds of very outlandish tales of wealth and of decadence. So these things are always just changing, but at least with the younger generation, I personally perceive that we are more aware of, you know, like not being too, not flaunting wealth too much. It just comes across as quite tacky. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, let's, uh, let's see if we can talk about, about your background and how your background is in this. I mean, you, you have experience in the, in the writing world, in the journalism world, in the publishing world, you, you've interned or you've, you've kind of worked for uh, all these magazines. Uh, you've covered elite society yourself as a writer, um, as a journalist. You know, how did that help you in the process of writing your book? Yeah, so I got to go behind the scenes and I got to see for myself the not so glamorous side behind all the glamorous photos that you would see in magazines, that you would see on social media. It also brought me up close with the socialites and allowed me to observe them in their natural habitat, so to speak. Um, and I would say that in general, I had a very positive experience. I think a lot of the socialites, I think socialites in general can perceive to be, you know, quite stuck up because of their wealth. But the ones that I've met were mostly very down to earth. 
um, they weren't afraid to do the grunt work on photo shoot sets. They weren't afraid to help move the props and to help clean up and pack up afterwards. And after photo shoots, we'll all go to the same hawker center or food court where they would order the same like $5, $5 noodle dish as everyone else. So maybe it's just a Singapore thing, but I would say that they have, um, the younger ones, at least, socialites are all pretty down to earth. You know, you know, one thing that's that struck me about about after reading your book and after I think reading a lot of other books um, over the past over the past few years is that there really does seem to be a lot more books, but also a lot just a lot more creative works um, from Asian creators, from Asian American creators, uh, definitely in young adult fiction, but also just fiction more broadly. Um, there's more. There are more TV shows starring. Asian and Asian Americans um, telling those kinds of stories written by Asians, written by Asian Americans, um, whether that ranging from Netflix series to to feature films. And, you know, I was wondering if you might have thoughts on this as well, you know, as an Asian writer yourself writing in this space, you know, I guess, where do you see the the progress of representation, you know, in the industry, in, in the creative industry when it comes to Asian works, and Asian American works? And second, you know, do you think that readers are more receptive, or maybe we're always receptive, to stories from, uh, I guess, from at least in the U.S., from minority communities? I think so. I think there is a positive move in the right direction, uh, especially over the past two years. I'm definitely seeing a lot more stories from authors of color, and I think that's awesome. I don't know whether this is like a subconscious or conscious thing, but I would say that most of my writing friends are people of color. And so sometimes it feels like I live in a little bubble because the books I hear about are all written by authors of color and all featuring characters of color. And I'm like, wow, you know, things are like really changing. But then a news report would come out and it would say something like, like the 90% of stories are still being written by white authors. And then that would just hit me. I'm like, wow, like things really have not changed that much after all. So while I think we are moving in the right direction, it is still a slow process and there's still a long way to go. Well, I think with that, I think that's a great place to end our interview with Tyla Jow, author of The Fraud Squad. Tyla, I do actually have two final questions for you, um, which, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Yeah, so you can find my book at, I think, basically every major online and physical retailer. Um, it should be available all around the world, mostly. But if not, you can also check out my link, um, which I think Nicholas can put into like the podcast description, perhaps. Um, and as well, what my next project will be. I have an, another adult novel coming out next January. It is not related to the Fraud Squad, but it also talks about an Asian protagonist who's grappling with imposter syndrome. I think that's just the one thing I love exploring in my stories. And it will be set in Silicon Valley, where I currently work, so I'm really excited about that. I think my coworkers right now at my tech company are terrified that I'm writing about them, just like how my coworkers at Vogue were all that I was writing about them when I announced my book deal. And besides that, I also have a children's novel coming out. It's about a young Chinese chess player and how she makes a bet to prove to a sexist teammate that girls can be as good as boys when it comes to chess. I'm very excited about that one as well. 
Well, they both sound very interesting. And I'd love to hear more about both of those books when the time comes. Um, oh man, I don't know. I don't know how I would feel. <laughs> I feel like I, I would be like your coworkers and worrying about whether or not anything I said might become a plot point in a particular book. Oh yeah, if I ever write about like a book about podcasters. Oh boy. Um, well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Steve Kemper, author of Our Man in Tokyo, An American Ambassador, and The Countdown to Pearl Harbor. But before then, Kyla, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me.